As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and while Red Bull's dominance of the 2022 Formula One season continues unabated, there are question marks off track following the loss of Dietrich Mateschitz. So what does it mean for the future of Red Bull in F1 and motorsport as a whole? I'm Ed Straw, and joining us to answer those questions and many more are Ben Anderson and Jack Benyon. Well, Jack, hello, how are you? It's been a long time since we've had you on the F1 podcast. Yeah, it's nice to appear on the race's second best podcast after the the one that J.R. Hildebrand hosts, the, the Race IndyCar podcast. So I'm happy to be back on your podcast i have to say we did uh we did slip earlier this year and allow you to come on our podcast but uh i'm glad to report to anyone listening to, to this podcast that ed has not appeared on our podcast again so you can go over and listen to it safely this is where you get to have vengeance and force our podcast numbers down as well with your appearance as i did with the, with the <laughs> podcast <laughs> and ben anderson how are you Hello, Ed. Yes, I'm very well, thanks. Uh, delighted to be on the podcast, driving the numbers down even further. <laughs> <laughs> You're in a slightly different room to where you normally are. What, what's going on in the back? Is that is that you in some uh, in some racing cars? Yes, I mean, I know obviously this is for listeners' benefit, so they won't be able to see my my stunning background, which uh, contains some kind of painting of a tree of life over my right shoulder. But yes, over my left shoulder are four photographs of me driving um, old Lotus Formula One cars, which I did for a, an autosport track test a few years ago. Um, so, yeah, a very uh, uh, big moment in my other career as a journalist come tame racing driver come track tester yeah it's it's quite impressive just to casually have some f1 car uh, pictures in the background so that that still carries a little bit of cachet which i felt (laughs) is why it was worth sharing with the uh, the listeners but let's get down to the topic which is red bull so ben dietrich matchitz's health it was the subject of much speculation in the months building up to his passing on october the 22nd although he was the minority owner of red bull with 49 percent of the ownership he did have full management control so what do we know about who is in control now and what if anything that means for red bull racing 
Yeah, well, um, I suppose the short answer to that is we know very little <laughs> about who is in control because uh, Math Ships was famously guarded and private, um, not one of these uh, famous billionaires to get involved in Formula One who likes to tout it around and show his face all the time and loud it on everybody. So there's a something of a power vacuum there, I suppose. Um, as you say, he was the minority shareholder in Red Bull overall. Um, so that definitely leaves a gap in terms of the wider energy drinks company. Obviously, the ties have majority control. And now that he's not steering operations, they need to obviously find a way of managing that. Maybe there'll be people that were working under Matashitz will step up. Maybe he's able to pass on that directorship um, after his death through the form of a will or what have you, and the ties have agreed to that. We don't know. Um, Christian Horner was quite insistent in the aftermath of the news breaking that Red Bull Racing was fine, that Matashitz had set a vision uh, and set everything up so that the team could continue basically unaffected. Um, and so I imagine in the short term, that's probably the case. You know, if he's if Matashitz has been able to set up some kind of foundational system whereby the money that he wanted to spend on motorsports and Formula One can continue being spent on motorsports and Formula One for the foreseeable future, then that buys Red Bull and various other projects that Matt Schitz was involved in a lot of time to then set what kind of path, direction they want to take now that he's not around. But you inevitably lose the driving force of that man. And we all know that you know it's all very well to have some kind of fund set up and certain things protected after your death, but those things still need to be managed by other people who aren't you. And at some point, you know, will Red Bull, the drinks company, want to maintain its involvement in Formula One as a marketing platform without Mataschitz leading them in that direction? Will the money that Mataschitz has earmarked to fund motorsports projects and the Red Bull Formula One team continue ad infinitum? We don't know. Um, if that dries up at some point, then obviously Red Bull needs to find, Red Bull, the Formula One team, needs to find another, as Bernie Eccleston said, there's always another billionaire, but they'll need to find another money man or another source uh, of income to take up that slack if the money doesn't continue funneling in. I mean, Red Bull Racing, on a purely factual basis, have lost a director because he was he was a director of the Formula One team and it isn't now, obviously, because he can't be. So... Um, Red Bull obviously needs to figure out what it does in terms of the, the the board level structure of its team now that he's not around. And do they have full decision-making power over what that looks like? Do they have to do something with the Massachusetts family to negotiate that situation? Does Red Bull drinks company have any, have any say in that? These are questions we don't know because Massachusetts, as I said, famously private man and wasn't in the business of telling everybody what his uh, his dying wishes were. It's a really interesting point that you make, uh, Ben, and just to kind of pick up on that a little bit, the I guess the it's so rare these days that we get such a, a big team or a big company like Red Bull with one person with so much influence over what it does and its activities, and that's being felt throughout sport at the minute. You know, we're not this is not the only podcast that we'll be discussing. You know, what's going to happen next at, at Red Bull and, and with Matterships? You know, uh, football's a big one. Um, I know Raphael Hornigstein from from our partners at the Athletics written a, a really good feature about the the kind of implications for for football and, and Red Bull. But it's just so rare these days that we get into a, a situation where you've got such a big team like this, and and so much of their futures has been defined by one person, and, and the future is so uncertain because of that person not being particularly forthcoming with with the plans for the future. 
Yeah, it's interesting because we often talk about uh, succession plans in situations like this. It almost feels like Mataschitz has put in place a continuation plan to continue for things to be done his way, or at least the way he set them in the long term. But as you said, Ben, that won't go on absolutely forever. I would have thought it would be very, very odd for the majority owners on the Thai side to be too interventionalist. They allowed Mataschitz's organisation to run things globally for a, for a long time and hugely successfully. And I would imagine that if you look at something like Red Bull Racing, it's well established. It's enormously successful. It's very much one of the key parts of their promotion of the of, of the brand. So it would seem an overreaction to suggest there's any great question mark about about what will uh, what will change there. But the fascinating thing is how obscure the whole thing is because even like funeral information hasn't been put out. I don't think Red Bull as a wider entity has put out any kind of official bit of information about uh, about the loss of Dietrich Mateschitz. Yes, people have talked about it. It's known to have happened, but it's it's almost a reflection of his own privacy, secretiveness. The, the, it's gone this way. There's no question about what's happened. There's nothing odd going on. It's just very much it, his death has been treated in much the same way as, as, as he lived. Very, very invisible, but with the effect profoundly felt. Yeah. And I suppose his you know, his privacy and how he wants his death to be treated and publicised or not publicised is is his business and we should respect that. Um, and it does seem from the way, you know, Red Bull Racing's bosses have spoken that, as we said, there's, uh, or as you put it, Ed, there's a continuation plan been put in place. So that stabilizes things for, for the time being, but we all know, and we've seen it in the past that big spend involvements in Formula One, for whether they be manufacturers or, or big name sponsors, they do tend to depend on individuals you know, you get boards of people who are enthusiastic about Formula One or a particular um, chairman or head who gets in, excited about Formula One and wants that, those programs to continue and they get funded and then that person moves on, I'm not talking about a death, but just a change of career path or a change of job. And then the direction of that company changes and Formula One is no longer the priority. They decide they don't want to spend money in quite that same way or to that same level. And suddenly the future of that entity becomes uncertain. And that would be my concern in the Red Bull situation that without, although he was very private, quiet, and very much in the background, he was a huge driving force behind the scenes. And without that kind of energy and direction and almost bringing everybody else with you come what may, unless you can find an absolute replica of that to just install in the same place, there's inevitably going to be some kind of drift that comes down the line. And I thought it was interesting that when Red Bull were linked with a Porsche Porsche buy-in, and then it all of a sudden it was a done deal almost it seemed, and then uh, all of a sudden it wasn't, uh, and there were issues raised about how much control Porsche could have of Red Bull Racing, and there was some resistance to that. But we understood Mataschitz to be quite keen on making that deal happen, and to me that sounded like somebody who was planning for a future where he knew he wasn't going to be around and therefore couldn't wield the influence in the way that he had done previously over the companies that were allowing Red Bull Racing to exist. So if I was inside the Red Bull team now, I'd be thinking, okay, so we've got a period now where we can continue because Mataschitz has done some some good forward planning in this scenario, but what do we do with the team long-term with him not being around? And... Porsche seemed like a good bet, except that they wanted total control. And obviously that is one way you can do it. You can just say, right, sell the whole thing up, give it to somebody else to run, and 
all the jobs are protected and everybody's fine. Red Bull didn't want to go that way, but I, I think it still leaves the question of how do you plug that Mataschitz gap some way down the line? And that's where I wonder if the likes of Honda could have a role to play. Obviously, they pulled out of Formula One on the engine side and then never really did. And now they kind of want back in and there's been some talk about them coming back as a full works team. But how would that work? They'd have to buy somebody. They obviously had meetings with Red Bull around the Austrian Grand Prix um, this year. So maybe they hold the answer, not in the way that Porsche were going to do it, but they could almost fill the Mataschitz position as a kind of background shareholder, have a stake in the team, provide some needed funding for it going forward and get some benefit obviously in terms of the marketing but not have full control where it becomes a a Japanese operation and the existing Red Bull independent racing team is sidelined which was the fear um, when the Porsche deal was was on the table and was eventually scuppered. Ed you mentioned the the kind of ownership of the company not being too interventionalist in the in the past but this is the situation we get to where you have big companies that have big influential leaders, whether that be publicly or behind the scenes. And you always worry at the point that they're no longer in place. You know, is there going to, is the power vacuum going to be filled by by someone else or is the succession plan going to be substantial or, or long enough into the future that it kind of, you know, helps that exchange of, of power kind of flow through the company? Because th- without doubt in Formula One, as we know, there's always going to be difficult decisions to be made and there's, you know, the team isn't going to be as successful as it has been recently forever necessarily. There's lots of different, you know, decisions and, and problems that will face the company. And I'm sure Dietrich was, you know, really important in, you know, weathering some of those problems or, or helping the team move in a direction that was, you know, conducive to its success. So that that kind of void and vacuum is where a lot of this uncertainty comes in, in the long term now. Yeah, exactly. You can't talk about how influential and powerful Mataschitz is and then pretend that there'll be no change with him him not being there. It's interesting because I think the business case for the team is is very strong because it's hugely successful. They've invested plenty in it in the past. It's now in a position where with the cost cap, ironically, et cetera, it, and the way that the prize money's done it, it should be able to tick over very, very nicely. Obviously, the powertrain side is a big investment. That's a slightly extra dimension to it. But I think the fact that the Porsche deal fell over or was dropped, it was Red Bull that, that decided it was not going to happen. And that means it was Mataschitz that ultimately stopped it, suggests that the the foundations for the longer term must be pretty firm, because I actually saw that that Porsche deal when it was looking likely to happen as a way of future-proofing the team against a time when Mataschitz wasn't there. Obviously, that's not what it is, or ultimately, it, it was not felt to need to be that. So I'd say that's pretty positive. And I guess it always just comes down to, as you said, Jack, the question of what individuals are involved and what their objectives and agendas are. Because you can say, well, this has made perfect sense for the company, which has been a monumental success over the past few decades. It's done incredible things. Red Bull as a whole, the annexing of the energy drink market, almost creating the energy drinks market. It's enormously profitable, incredible company. You you can't miss it. F1's been a big part of that. So it all makes sense for that to continue in one way, shape or form. And the only question is whether something might change to to shift that. But we've seen no sign of it. I think that's the really important thing. And this team is in a a great position, isn't it, Ben? I mean, the the powertrain's operation is very ambitious, but we're expecting some Honda involvement as well. But that means this is a fully integrated works team on the same campus, even though it's not a conventional automotive manufacturer. You almost have to consider it a a pseudo-automotive manufacturer nowadays. Yeah, I mean, that was the incredible big last step, wasn't it? Um, 
an, a properly independent team, although one that had foundations in buying out a previously failed manufacturer team, actually taking the leap and going, you know what, we're going to do engines ourselves. I mean, this is something that McLaren flirted with as an idea when they were struggling um, with Honda as an engine partner. Uh, and their deal was a lot sweeter than Red Bull's was at the time. So, uh, but they resisted, you know, the McLaren mindset was, you know, we do, we go racing, we do chassis, um, we can help out with certain bits where you get the intersection between engine and car, but we're not going to suddenly set up a whole new business and start building engines ourselves. But Red Bull have taken that step and that's a, it's a big thing to do, huge amount of investment, ambitious, difficult. You're going up against, you know, massive companies with long, long, long histories in this kind of thing. Um, but it does set them up for the future in the sense that they they aren't then because they've resisted things like Porsche taking full control of the whole operation. They're not dependent on the whims of an OEM changing because suddenly Formula One is the latest flavour and then it's not. I mean, I mean, just look at Honda. You know, everything was on the uptick and they pulled out just before they won the world championship. So you can see why Red Bull felt vulnerable and I think they got so fed up and Matchships would have felt this keenly as well in, in the, the early part of the hybrid era when they were struggling so much with the Renault engines that weren't working well enough, weren't reliable enough. That relationship broke down to such an extent that it was basically irreparable. And then when they had to go back to Renault cap in hand, obviously they were then paying for engines that uh, they didn't want and that previously they, they weren't paying for. But all the time... They were trying to look around for another engine deal. They just kept getting rebuffed because the racing team was too good and the other manufacturers feared what Red Bull could do if they had to supply them with a power unit. So obviously Nicky Lauda tried to um, tried to do a deal with Matterships for Mercedes engines and that got rejected. You know, Ferrari were never going to do it. Even when the Honda was no good, Ron Dennis had you know no truck with the idea of Red Bull becoming a partner or a customer of of. McLaren Honda because they all felt that basically they were going to get beaten by Red Bull with the same engine. Um, so I guess this is the culmination of that whole process and the fact that you know the rules even had to change to force manufacturers to supply teams when there was an imbalance. Red Bull thought, well, we can take matters into our own hands if we can convince uh, Dietrich to put, front up the money. We can, you know, after the work we've done with Honda and the learning that we've we've done there we can we can go out on our own and yeah they're ready to go now aren't they? they he's even managed to to sign off investment in a new wind tunnel before um disappearing so um there aren't really any obvious weaknesses now that you could spot in terms of things that could trip red bull up coming down the road other than the fact that you don't have this massive driving force behind the entire team there anymore yeah, and I think that's one of the reasons why I think Red Bull Racing, of all the motorsport involvement of Red Bull, feels the most obviously secure and, and, and safe, certainly while it's performing on track. And there's no sign of anything going awry in that regard. Obviously, the powertrain thing is a very, very big ask. But generally, when Red Bull does things, it does them right in Formula One. So you would assume they'd do well and be competitive but that's probably the next point where you wonder how things might pan out but yeah Red Bull Racing things looking very very good for them I think Matashitz has left them in a in a fantastic situation. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime day or night. Yep you heard that right. 
you can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Well, Jack, let's get on to Red Bull's other team, AlphaTauri, because it's in an interesting situation. Its future seems absolutely stable, given there's been good investment there over the years. But it is a team that's in the past been up for sale, albeit the distant past, albeit on the proviso. It had to be a rock-solid buyer and remain in Fianza. So could you see that team changing hands down the line? And could it even be an option for Andretti, an organisation you, of course, know very well? Yeah, Andretti's an interesting one. I guess just to start with, it's a good, te- a good time for a, a team to buy into AlphaTauri because as well as the investment that you mentioned, it's kind of been moving more towards a separate model in recent years, it, you know, its own team um, from the ground up, basically, as opposed to the, I guess, the kind of junior team that it that it founded as. You know, it's morphed into something a little bit different now, hasn't it? Although it still has those kind of feeder driver elements to it. So it's uh, it's definitely an interesting proposition for for someone coming in. You're not just buying a team that is at the whim of Red Bull that is just used to develop junior drivers. You're you're buying into a you know a successful midfield team in its own right that has been geared towards, you know, moving forwards to towards becoming a, a proper independent team, you know, over the past few years now. So it's definitely an interesting uh, proposition for anyone. Um you know, Andretti does seem like a a logical choice for that, doesn't it? Um you know, it shares some of AlphaTauri's values in in terms of trying to develop young drivers. It has, uh, you know, Michael, especially when it comes to American drivers, has an affinity for trying to give them a chance. I guess some of that is born out of him maybe feeling like he didn't get the the chances that, that he should have got in his career at times. And, and maybe that's his way of trying to give back to, to other drivers. But generally, I think he wants to see more American drivers being able to, to fight their way towards Formula One and, and have a better chance at, at doing that. So I guess that's a good fit. Um, you know, we talked about the the base needing to stay in in Fienza, and I don't think that would be an issue for for Andretti. Um, they've talked about wanting to have a base in in Indianapolis with their Formula One team, um, and I guess you know Mario is uh, very in tune with his Italian roots, and I'm sure he wouldn't mind having a a base in Italy. It would be quite strange for them to to have a Formula E base in England and a, a Formula One base in Italy, I guess. But uh, I'm sure that's a more of a logistical thing that they would be able to work out, and wouldn't be a, a massive kind of stumbling block in terms of them, uh, you know, buying into the team or or anything like that. I, I guess the question for Andretti now is the the level of desire to keep on with their, you know, uh, bids to, to get onto the F1 grid. They've obviously been rebuffed in, in different ways, whether it be trying to buy into another team, like with Sauber's Alfa Romeo entry, or whether it's trying to obviously establish their, their own team in, in F1. And I wonder if they've burnt some of the, the goodwill they might have had at the start of the, the programme with how the kind of narrative of them trying to get into F1 has gone. Um, you know, it was obviously a difficult time where Michael is very passionate about wanting to get his team on the grid. Um, but some of the discussions between, you know, himself, Alf Towery and some of the other Formula One teams that went on in the media probably didn't do uh, many favours for, for Andretti. And when you couple that with the the level of performance that they've had on the IndyCar grid, especially last season, um, not a good season for a team that is expected to be a front runner, then you kind of wonder, does F1 need Andretti or, or does it want Andretti on the grid? Um, you know, it's, F1 seems to be, you know, you guys will be able to speak much more accurately towards this, but it seems like it's moving more towards a kind of franchise model where, you know, Formula One want their teams obviously to be very valuable and to be, you know, you don't want anyone being able to walk onto the F1 grid. Obviously you want the the teams to have value and that in turn increases the value of the championship itself. And I wonder if the the level of performance Andretti's displayed in, in other championships is enough to convince Formula One that they would really want Andretti on the grid. So there's plenty of questions around, um, you know, Andretti and whether it's the right team to, to come into F1. Um, 
you know, all that kind of stuff. But I think Alvatari would make a, you know, a good option for it to, to buy in if it had the opportunity. I think you're spot on about the the franchising model. That's exactly what cost cap in conjunction with the Concord agreement has been designed to do, you know, stabilize all 10 teams that you have currently, make them all have intrinsic value that can then be passed on if somebody decides that they've had enough and they want to sell up and move on. It's it's one of the reasons Lawrence Stroll bought Racing Point or Force India as it was, turned it into Racing Point and then Aston Martin because he could see this coming and he could be one of the few people to come into F1 with a fortune and leave with a bigger one rather than come in with a fortune and lose it. Um, so that's definitely the case. I think from there's a bit of a disconnect between what Formula One wants and the fans want, perhaps. There seems to be quite a lot of fan love for Andretti and this this romantic idea of an independent team coming into Formula One. People generally like the idea of there being more teams on the grid. And originally it seemed like Andretti wanted a new entry rather than taking over an existing one. And that got people very excited. But the the reality from Formula One's point of view speaks to what you're saying about what value can they add. And this is something that Toto Wolff has, has picked up on as well. Because Andretti aren't, as you said, even the best IndyCar team at the moment. And IndyCar is not anywhere near as big a championship as Formula One. And we did, we did a roundtable discussion with Stefano Domenicali. I think it was just before summer break finished, so pre-Spa, when um, actually the Audi announcement was imminent. And that's exactly the way Formula One wants this to go. They want to attract manufacturers back into Formula One. They've had too few for too long. And everyone gets that manufacturers are capricious and they don't stick around, although obviously we have a few very loyal ones now. The, the new engine rules have all been designed to get people like Audi and Porsche, maybe others, to come in or come back. And Formula One wants them to buy into the existing franchises rather than come in with some ridiculous infrastructure budget, start from scratch and have to catch up the decades in some cases of uh, time that you, you'd need to be able to compete with the likes of Ferrari or Mercedes or even Red Bull Racing. So if Andretti were a potential buyer for Alpha Tauri, I don't think they would be front of the queue and they certainly wouldn't be front of Formula One's queue. Formula One would be saying, okay, Red Bull Racing didn't want to sell up to Porsche. Porsche wants full control of a team how about they buy Alpha Tauri and do their thing with them and then they can lease an Audi engine and badge it as a Porsche or whatever they want to do and if Porsche don't like that because Alpha Tauri are too small fry or whatever then maybe that's the option for Honda to come back in because they're already halfway in anyway and they have their existing relationship with Red Bull and Red Bull continues as it is as a Red Bull works team all funded and ready to go because Mataschitz has made it so and they worry about how they feel any funding shortfall down the line and Honda comes in as the as a works team again takes over Alpha Tauri the engine can be badged a Honda even though it's a Red Bull engine but I mean are they going to be pretty much the same thing anyway probably because they've been working together for so long um I just don't see how Andretti really gets a look in there unless you know they really need to sell Alpha Tauri and, and maybe in the post-Mataschitz vacuum, suddenly having a second team and the hassle that goes with that, someone goes, you know what, that's an easy thing to get rid of. Let's just take the money and run. If they if they want to do that and they can't get the manufacturers interested, then maybe Andretti has a chance. But I, I just can't see under the current model how they get their way in. I feel like the Sauber deal was the best option before they started making a lot of noise and putting noses out of joint, which I think has also happened. 
Uh, and obviously the Andretti name is very famous and respected within Formula One, but I think the way they've gone about things hasn't been received very well. And so I feel like their their only shot is to take over a team if Formula One's gamble, if you like, or bid on manufacturer teams, sorry, manufacturers buying into existing teams kind of falls by the wayside somehow. I think the the romanticism and the the disconnect between what Formula One and, and the fans want is really important to to mention. And I think Colton Herter plays a, a big part in that because if you look at the obviously we know a, a big part of the groundswell of interest in America has come from Drive to Survive and we've seen a, a big uptake in, in the fan base there. And I think not just the romanticism of, of Andretti from a from a, a group of if you're a fan who's watched motorsport for obviously decades and uh have been around that long that you the, the, you know Michael and, and Mario and are big fans of them but the I think the idea of some of that younger fan base seeing someone like Colton Herter come into Formula One as, a, as an American driver is also a, a romantic element to that story which kind of adds to it as well and, and it was probably driving a little bit of that from the from the fan element so but yeah I think you're, you're totally right on the on the points that you made there and um I think the the likelihood of them getting on the grid it's it's difficult to see where where that does come from but the the big thing they have in their favor is being american and wanting it to be an american team with an american driver because as you mentioned the drive to survive effect and just a general boom in interest in formula one stateside is unprecedented and formula one does recognize as we can see from races like miami and vegas and what have you not to get totally off topic here but they they are about cashing in on the, that american interest so you can see why Andretti wants to do it now. And that element of All-American is a, is a powerful factor. But unless unless they can find an existing team to take over, like AlphaTauri, if it is up for sale, I just don't see how it happens because otherwise you end up just being like another Haas. You know, you have a, a base of operations, you buy in as much as you can, and you, you have to do it that way because there's no other way to do it than that if you can't suddenly just build a m- monstrous facility that can compete with the best, which no one can do overnight. So Formula One doesn't want another Haas, I don't think. So I think Andretti's last best hope is to find a team to take over. And if 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 it's not Alpha Tauri, then I just don't see it. Yeah, as you said, if it's up for sale. My expectation would be that Alpha Tauri will have been provided for in Mataschitz's will or whatever ongoing trust holds it. But whether there's a necessity to have that second team, because I think... Red Bull quite liked having it because it gave them 20% of the grid. It played a part in that great sway that Mataschitz, that that power he held very quietly in the background of F1. So that's one where the character of the ongoing leadership of Red Bull is important. Do they feel that's important? If they're not that bothered about that, then they might feel that actually if there was a really strong buyer, a really good buyer that would have the guarantee of a bright future for that team, because I don't think they'll sell it to a, to a questionable owner. It will be someone rock solid. Then they might consider doing it, I'd have thought. But as it stands, the least that happens there is AlphaTauri just carries on as it is. I think, as Jack alluded to earlier, AlphaTauri and the whole Red Bull operation has been kind of moving away from that foundation anyway. Just naturally, AlphaTauri is a much more independent team than it used to be. That Even the naming, although it's a... Mataschitz brand is still you know it's more different than it's ever been it looks more different than it's ever been it isn't really the same quite the same um, driver convey about that it was you know the the occupier of the second Red Bull racing seat never never went through that program and he's locked in for another couple of seasons and I think you know in the kind of mid to late 2000s when the teams were young and 
there was more of an allowance for customer teams, if you like, or even customer cars. You know, it was very controversial. Things have definitely moved away from that. And I just don't see the I don't see the same necessity for AlphaTauri to be there for Red Bull, especially because you mentioned the power, Ed. The governance in Formula One's been changing as well, and there's been a push to dilute that kind of vote block and teams having the votes of other teams because they supply them engines. So if Formula One and the FIA succeeds in continuing to break that down, there's even less reason politically to hold on to a second team unless you know it's useful to you because it provides an income that you can usefully deploy elsewhere. But when you've had one driving owner who wants it to happen just because he wants it to happen, that's one thing. Once he's not there, then it's a different situation, isn't it? And whatever appears in the post-matter shits well to fill the vacuum might make a different decision on that team and say, you know what, we we don't need this. It's it's not really giving us anything that is essential to what we want to do in the future. So therefore, a sale would make sense. And then some of the options and permutations we've discussed come onto the table. But at the moment, it's all speculation because as far as we know, everything continues as is for now. Yeah, and it's a very good little team. Well, I say little team. It's got bigger over time, and now F1 has got that cost cap. It's it's operating at the cost cap. They've invested in the facilities there over time, so it's it's a much, much, much bigger team than what it was when they bought it as as an ailing Minardi uh, way back in, in 2005 when it was falling over. Obviously, it became Toro Rosso in 2006, so an interesting proposition there. And also great kudos to Matashitz for turning that around because, like you say, it was an ailing team. You know, Minardi was much loved, particularly for uh, Bring Back V10s podcast fans, I'm sure. But, it, you know, it was maligned and a bit of a laughing stock towards the end. So for, for Matashits to buy that up and turn it around, and it's now, you know, a very, very solid, respectable midfield Formula 1 team that more than washes its face and also a Grand Prix winner. So um, he deserves enormous credit for what he's done there, whatever happens to it in the future. Let's look a little bit beyond the F1 teams themselves now. And we were at the first Red Bull era, Austrian Grand Prix back in 2014. Really memorable event, immediately one of the best in F1. But it was very much Mateschitz's race, wasn't it? And it, it's never yeah. been about making a profit. So can you see that continuing in the long term? That's a really tricky one. Um, I think that is probably more vulnerable than the other things we've been talking about on this podcast, purely because he was so much behind that race even returning and the contractual terms of how long that race stays on the calendar are very opaque and I think it's the only one we can't really be sure how long the deal is I feel like that was a race that was going to be on the calendar as long as he was pushing for it to be on the calendar and was prepared to underwrite it because it's difficult to make a profit as a race promoter in Formula One there's obviously huge hosting fees and You'd imagine some of that was waived on the basis that Matashitz's teams were, you know, like you say, 20% of the grid and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, what he'd, he'd poured into <clears throat> the sport, into Formula One, et cetera. So I can see it continuing in the short term. We know it's on the calendar for next year. It's a great race. Um, as you say, it was a, a fantastic event when it was brought back. Um, it's a proper old school Formula One race with, you know, campsite festival atmosphere, um, you know, not just all shiny bells and whistles and paddock club. It was very much, to use a cliche term, salt of the earth as far as Formula One can be. Um, so it would be a great shame, I think, if it if it didn't continue. But 
the way Formula One is going with its calendar and talking about rotating races and wanting each race to deliver bigger, better, more different spectacle. I don't see how the Austrian Grand Prix really fits with Formula One's current slash future mindset for for race promotion. And now Mateschitz isn't there unless there is, again, someone with the same dynamism and mandate to drive that thing forward and underwrite any losses that may ensue from hosting that race because you don't get the spectator numbers or it's not possible to build in more spectator capacity or diversify the event in other ways that bring in more money. Basically, if it becomes too hard to do it uh, in a proper business way, then I can just see it falling by the wayside like so many other Formula races because the fact remains now um, demand for, for Formula One races or hosting them is far outstripping supply in terms of the calendar. Maybe to come at it from a different angle, but I, I'd like to ask just because I remember in 2018, I think we drove to, to Austria together, Ben, on that occasion. Yes, we did. But anyway, <laughs> that's an aside. Um, that was the first time I really experienced kind of what I would call, I guess, Verstappen mania, like with the orange t-shirts and the fireworks, well, not the fireworks, the pyrotechnics, the flares and and all that kind of stuff. And obviously at that point, you know, he didn't have a proper home Grand Prix. So that was effectively the, at least one of the closest races for Verstappen fans to to go to. And I'm, I'm kind of interested what you guys think about the the implications of now Verstappen does have a home Grand Prix, you know, does, does the Austrian Grand Prix hold any kind of sway in terms of the Verstappen factor of it or have we got to a point now where the the kind of the fans are going to go there anyway and it's not really uh that you know they can go to Zambor they can go to other places in 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 Europe as far as I can tell, pretty much every Grand Prix seems to be the Verstappen Grand Prix, certainly in uh, in Europe. Because, yeah, okay, Sandvor is Orange Army everywhere, but you get the same at Spa. I know Verstappen is is part Belgian as well, so that's another home Grand Prix for him. But pretty much any European race, you'll get a pretty obvious Verstappen uh, fan support there. So Austria is another one of those ones. I guess maybe it's probably second. Third now, isn't it? Or third behind Spa. I haven't counted yeah. the number of uh, orange flags, but it's it's in that ballpark. But it's <laughs> it's interesting because the point you made, Ben, was about the, the, the kind of business case for this race, which I completely agree with. So that is the one thing that makes me wonder that if Dietrich Mateschitz was future-proofing everything, maybe this would be something he's given some attention to. He could have set it up because they've got a, a deal that, that's I think it's sort of a rolling deal it ends up. There's various sort of extensions that come in. They're paying an amount similar to Silverstone kind of of level, but yeah, it doesn't need to make a profit. So it may be that it's been set up to continue because that region is is Red Bull country and, and Matchett's knew how important to the economy of that area events like this and Red Bull as a whole are. So this might be the one that because, yeah, it, it, it didn't have the strongest business case, needed the most shoring up. So I'll be interested to see how long it goes on for. And I imagine next year will be, well, I was going to say it was going to be a, it would be a celebration of Mataschitz and what he did, but actually <laughs> given what we've said about how secretive he was and how even it is, uh, his, uh, his passing has been very low key, uh, perhaps it wouldn't be, but those there might well make it that. So that that's a really interesting thing to see because that that very much felt like a, a passion project element that, that never made total sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it will just roll on as normal, won't it? We won't see any kind of reference to Mataschitz, so I shouldn't expect. Nothing uh, nothing obvious anyway, maybe subtle things. But I think you're right to, to point out how important it is as a home race for Red Bull racing in terms of the ownership, um, as was. 
So I think, you know, allowing for what Matichitz might have done in terms of future proofing and with his trust fund or what have you to help keep it going, I still think it will take some underwriting and dynamism from Red Bull, the Formula 1 team itself, whether it's Helmut Marko who picks up that mantle or whoever, to keep that thing rolling. Because it's all very well to have, you know, Verstappen mania. And that's a good point, Jack. You know, those those races in Central Europe are, you know, dominated by Verstappen fans. And obviously Zandvoort's come back onto the calendar purely because they can they can take advantage of of that patriotic fervour. But it isn't enough to sustain a race indefinitely. And, you know, we saw in Germany how post-Schumacher, you know, you had Vettel doing incredibly well. You had Rosberg coming to the forefront, but those races couldn't make sense. And in the end, they wanted, you know, the likes of Mercedes with obviously German shareholders to to start helping underwrite those races to keep them on the calendar and discussions happen and what have you. But, you know, they weren't prepared to do that. And a similar thing I'm sure would happen with the Austrian Grand Prix without Mateschitz ensuring that it, it continues. You need someone else to be filling that role. And if Red Bull don't do it, or other priorities take over, you can just see that, you know, because it doesn't need to turn a profit, it's not run as a completely independent, profitable business case. It's going to be right for the chop if if all the plates aren't kept spinning at the right speed. Yeah, it could well turn out that it's got now a certain shelf life, that it's ring-fenced for a number of years, but beyond that, it'll need to to make its own business case, which could be uh, quite challenging. Now, Jack, you've had a lot of experience covering Red Bull Junior programme drivers uh, over the years. So I guess the question here isn't necessarily whether you see anything changing, but whether things need to change with that, given it's not the most reliable producer of F1 drivers in recent years, assuming that is, of course, it's still got its funding long term. Yeah, well, I think, first of all, this isn't necessarily a a question that is unique to Red Bull. Um, You know, it's obviously difficult to get young drivers onto the grid these days. Um, Any junior team will... Will struggle in the current climate to to bring drivers through. It's 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 something that's never been easy in motorsport, obviously. But um, you know the competition is is arguably as high as it's ever been to try and make it onto the Formula One grid now, and we know how difficult that is. I think the the business element of a junior program is quite interesting and something um, you guys might disagree with, but I think I have quite strong views on in the sense of um, you know as long as this program is from a from a business perspective viable then there's no reason to to change it as it is um i think we've seen a a transition with some of these junior programs in how they've developed over the years and they they have business elements to them now in the sense that almost all of them will have um you know paying drivers who want to be associated with the brand um they want to be linked to the potential future of a, a Formula One seat with that team and the the association with that team is extremely valuable to, to drivers who are trying to use their backers or their resources to to find a way onto the grid. So what we've seen in you know recent years is Formula One teams using those drivers to offset other drivers so that they can help fund the the drivers that they maybe feel are more talented but don't have the the same amount of backing as some of the some of the others have. So a kind of meritocratical system, I guess, where they kind of spread the money around and at the end of the year the 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 books kind of balance and, and everything is is kind of standard. So I guess the 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 bigger problem here is how do you reduce the costs of the the ladder and make it easier for drivers to come through the feeder series to F1, which is not a new problem. I'm certainly not going to sit here and talk for hours about that because it's been an issue that has been around for for a very long time. But in terms of, you know, picking out Red Bull in this sense of they're, they, they're not being the, the best at producing 
you know, Formula One drivers in recent years. I don't think that's because they're doing anything particularly wrong or different to any of the other junior programs. A lot of it is good fortune with the drivers that you pick up um, and, and, and that can be a, a big part in it. So uh, I guess, you know, given the model, it's hard to argue that, that any junior pro- program, um, you know, is, is not worth having because they tend, from a business point of view, they tend to make sense. Um, and at the end of it, you get to choose which drivers you think are, are capable of giving more time um, or, or less time. And, and quite often this is a way for teams to basically get free simulator time by taking on drivers who are paying to be part of their program. Um, they could then pay another driver to do a lot of their sim work. And, and that's another way for Formula One teams to really evaluate whether a driver is good enough to, to drive for them is if, if they can, you know, if they can be uh, really useful in the sim, especially on race weekends, where they're doing a lot of the the pounding round, assessing some of the changes that are going on across the, the Formula One weekend, if they can give reliable feedback in those situations, then obviously they become extremely valuable. But I guess that's a lot of talk about junior programs in general. I think the, the Red Bull program is obviously one that's had its critics over the years for being quite cutthroat. My personal opinion is they that they do a lot for for bringing these drivers through. Obviously, it's um, it's important to consider these drivers' mental health and things like that when when they are cast aside from from Formula One and not given that opportunity. But on the whole, I think you know the Red Bull driver program has done a lot to bring drivers through. You only have to look at the the CVs of the drivers that have either made it to Formula One or, or gone on to other motorsport championships and been extremely successful. You know, has there been um, People who don't meet that rule, yes, of course, there's been drivers who, who who haven't always been treated particularly well by by Red Bull. But on the whole, I think they've done a, a good job of bringing drivers through. And um, this is a really complicated. This has become a really complicated system now, which is quite difficult to unpick when you kind of get into the business aspect of it and um, trying to to learn how much these Formula One teams are actually trying to develop drivers and how much of it is them, you know, trying to either make money out of their programs or at least, you know, try and, and get the best out of the program that they can possibly get. So it's it's a difficult situation. I think what you can say from the, the bigger picture perspective is that Red Bull in that post 2000s manufacturer mass pullout vacuum, they were pretty much the only game in town as far as young driver program, a serious young driver program went. They were absolutely festooned with drivers wanting to be involved so they could have their pick basically of of anyone they liked almost apart from the, the the occasional few who wanted to fund their own way and they've set the template so they've suffered definitely i think in recent seasons because there's just more competition in that market you know however the business is working you know pretty much every team on the formula 1 grid now has some form of driver development academy or program that's designed to have whether it be someone just paying or genuine talents that they want to bring through um they all know that they need to have some kind of trained eye on the junior and feeder series because ultimately if you can get your hooks into someone really good and tie them down to a proper contract, then it's a very, very effective and cheap way to transition your driver lineup and future-proof your team. Um, Red Bull were really the first to cotton on to that and do it properly. Um, Now other teams are doing it and doing it well. And I think the Red Bull program is now having a bit of a, a lull because there's just more competition out there and you you know you, you back certain drivers and they don't work out and what have you so it needs to probably go through its own kind of reevaluation I mean it's kind of naturally happening because they got Verstappen and he's immense and locked in for the long term so equally the pressure on the Red Bull program to find the next Verstappen is has eased quite considerably 
so they again you know they bought themselves time with with max and then Mataschitz will have done whatever he's done to to ensure things continue in the in the interim and then red bull just needs to decide how to structure its driver program in the future based on what are the aims you know do we need to find someone that we can keep warm and bring through to challenge Max Verstappen or replace Max Verstappen if he decides he wants to move on? Do we need to start filling four seats with proper drivers? Or if we're going to flog this second team off, then can we afford to kind of scale back the, the junior driver program and just back the odd guy here or there? Or do it, you know, not every year, but, you know, on a sort of more hit and miss or ad hoc basis. Um, but certainly they deserve overall massive credit for for picking up all that slack when so many manufacturers that did have um, driver programs or were bringing talent through just all walked within a, the space of a few years. Structure is a really interesting thing to bring up. And Ed, you'd asked, you know, does it need to change? And I think the only suggestion that I would have, um, and this is maybe this is uh this has complicated implications that we could talk about in a second but the the one thing i would have uh, if i was heading up the the rebel driver program is to have uh, a driver who has gone through that program to head it up basically i know Helmut marco has done a, a great job of finding young talent over the years and he's obviously got a great eye for for young drivers but i really feel like the 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 program could use someone who's been through the system recently and has been through the you know the recent rigors of the junior single seater ladder to really understand how best to achieve the goals you were talking about Ben what you know whatever you're trying to do with that junior program I think having someone who has recently been through that would be massively beneficial to to what Rebel is trying to achieve with its driver program so if I was going to suggest anything I think that would be a big thing but it's also important to mention that none of the teams on the F1 grid have sprawling junior programs that have 20 people working on them and have you know unlimited amounts of of resource as we've already discussed there obviously uh, the, the business implications of them are quite significant but you, you, you know you're not going to get any team on the grid you know putting five or six people permanently on a on a junior program just to to talent scout and stuff like that so uh, maybe my suggestion's unrealistic in that sense but i do think uh, it, not just red bull a lot of these junior programs but especially the red bull one given how difficult it is to go through this current system and, and actually get to Formula One. I think uh, some, you know, some current knowledge of the system would be a, a really cool thing to have. Yeah. And I think when it comes to the the Red Bull driver program as a whole, obviously this is very much Helmut Marco's project. So it also depends what Helmut Marco's long-term position is. I would imagine again, his position's been kind of shored up because he was very much Mataschitz's man there. So Again, this could be one of those things that's got a certain lifespan that's ring-fenced and then maybe it has to evolve five years down the line or on whatever timescale has been set. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. 
I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said done. Well, Ben, let's talk about Mataschitz overall, because he did have a profound impact on F1 and motorsport in general. I described him as the closest thing you could get to Enzo Ferrari in, in 21st century F1. In terms of his way of working and influence, obviously, Ferrari's its own thing, and I'm not trying to compare the two, but just in terms of that <laughs> slight detachment, the mysteriousness and the, the shadowy influence in the, in, in the background. So his loss has to have an effect on F1 in the coming years in some way, doesn't it? You can't be that influential and powerful and then expect your absence not to have some impact. No, absolutely. Um, I think we've discussed it quite well you know, throughout this podcast, how much reach and influence he had in a quiet way, and also how, as far as we know, he has planned for this event eventuality and hopefully ensured that most of the things, or all of the things that he had such an important hand in making happen can continue. But it still brings us back to the question of down the line without that kind of personality driving things forward, will all those things remain as they appear now? It feels like inevitably they won't. But, you know, to use your own Enzo Ferrari analogy, yes, you know, he was the founder and driving force of that team for decades. But when after he died, the team continued and got stronger. And although, you know, we like to give Ferrari a kick quite often for shambolically going about racing sometimes they've been enormously successful um, and with Michael Schumacher obviously for a long period completely dominant in Formula One um, and Enzo Ferrari built those foundations what Dietrich Mateschitz has done has built incredible foundations in terms of not only two very very strong one particularly strong Formula One team but also other elements around that whether it be a Grand Prix or a junior driver program um, or, as Jack mentioned at the top of the, the podcast, um, other sports teams in football and what have you. So um, that's an enormous reach. And, and he obviously planned that these things could continue beyond him. So there's every chance that providing they're well run and the people still involved make sensible decisions in the spirit that uh, he envisaged, then they can continue for, for many years or even decades to come and, and go on to have more and more success. Yeah, and Jack, just to take almost the wider motorsport view, obviously we've talked a lot about F1 here, a little bit about the the other activities, but he has transformed the face of motorsport over the past 20, 25 years as well, hasn't he? He's had an influence on just about every conceivable championship of, of any international significance. Yeah, huge amount of influence across motorsport. I think it, his loss has been felt you know, wide. Um, anyone you speak to is kind of... Um, stunned surprised um confused as to what happens next um i think as we spoke about right at the top of the the show the the uncertainty about what hap what happens next has naturally intrigued people as to to what's going to happen so it, it's rare that 
as as we also said earlier that that one person has so much influence in such a you know such a huge company especially in motorsport at the the very top level we're so used to manufacturers pulling out of formula one or or manufacturers having a, a a massive influence on various parts of formula one but not so much you know one person like Lorenzo ferrari analogy having so much you know influence over it so yeah a, an absolute um surprise for for everyone across motorsport and you know everyone will have like you said been felt by things that he has done in in the past or or changes that he has brought about through his team or or the way that his team has done things over over the years so yeah a massive massive influence and and one that will be you know felt really wide and you know this story is one that is going to continue not just in the in the short term but as we discussed um the the long term is always going to be a, a question mark here because as you hope um you know red bull will survive in a, a motorsport context as long as ferrari did after after enzo passed the, the the reality is that we just don't know what's going to happen in the long term for the reasons that we've you know discussed earlier in the in the podcast so we'll be keeping keeping a close eye on on this story for a, for a very long time now it'd be really interesting to see how the the cogs start to turn now and as things start to naturally kind of creep out and become more public um after all of this kind of secrecy that we've had in the in the immediate aftermath of his death yeah that'll inevitably happen over time i think no matter how well constructed the continuation plan is it can't account for forever can it so things will change down the line but I think the great thing is that that Red Bull certainly in F1 is on very very solid ground with the various teams it's got so I think we'll see those continuing to go from strength to strength one way or another thanks to Ben and Jack for your insight head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen for the latest news and analysis on the world of Formula One and if you'd like to keep track of what day it is next year accompanied by stunning XBB photography head to shop.the-race.com that's shop.the-race.com to order the races 2023 calendar right now I'm particularly looking forward to July as there's a great shot of Sebastian Vettel in the Williams FW14B there's also plenty of other podcasts to listen to including the race IndyCar podcast where you can hear more from Jack Benyon and his partner in crime JR Hildebrand and also plenty to watch on our YouTube channel. So stay with us for everything you need to know for the world of Formula One. The Athletic.